Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. My name is Sam Webb, and I'm here to share some of the most epic conversations I get to have with some of the most fascinating people on our planet. Every episode is dedicated to elevating the conversation around mental health because it ain't weak to speak. I'm a massive believer that a conversation could change and save a life for the better. Thank you for joining me on this journey. G'day everyone, welcome back onto the podcast. It is always good to be back here with you guys. Look, there's so much happening. I mean, before I dive into this week's podcast, I want to just say thank you again, like I always do. Always grateful, seriously, just for showing up on this podcast and listening and taking your time to be here and hopefully learning some stuff about life and about you know how you can become a better person, how you can live better, live healthier and chase your dreams and make them a reality, I guess. That's what this is all about, that's for sure. And as I said, a lot is going on this month. It is Mental Health Month, so I'm sure you're going to be seeing a lot of stuff online and across socials about mental health awareness. Are you okay day? We've got It Ain't Week to Speak Day. So a lot of new things happening. We've got campaigns happening at Living. There's been collaborations going on. We've got World Mental Health Day coming up. So be here, spread the message, spread the love. That is exactly what it's all about. But mental health can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's not all about, you know, over 300 different diagnosable mental illnesses. That's for sure. That's just part of it. You know, mental health, mental illness, how we can become a better person, how we can deal with our mental health challenges. There's so many different complexities around it. And everyone has probably experienced it in some different way, whether it's through themselves or maybe an experience with a loved one or a friend or something like that. But when it's all said and done, it's really just about how we can improve our mental health, how we can live better. That is really what it's all about because it is very important. Well, without further ado, I want to welcome onto the podcast our next guest. Now, if you're a rugby league fan and you're a supporter this is the episode you definitely don't want to miss. I've got Josh Dugan coming on board today. Now, as you know, he played for the Blues. He's played many games for the Raiders. He's played actually over 215 NRL games. He played 12 New South Wales games. He's played 12 tests for Australia. So when we talk about someone who's done it all, this is definitely the guy who's done it all. He's achieved greatness. He's hit rock bottom. And he's got some really cool, interesting stories He's going to share with all of us today, including myself. He wants to talk about you know life after footy, what that transition was like in regards to his identity and the crisis that comes with that. So for those of you who are in a transition in your careers or in your relationships, sometimes there is that identity crisis. So Josh definitely talks about ways that he managed that, some of the tools that he used to navigate out of that crisis. We also dive into how he became a professional football player. Now, you know, a lot of people think that you're just born with these natural talents and you get selected and it's an easy process, but unfortunately that is not the case. And so we talk about what it really took for him, what's the difference between, you know, talent and hard work and sacrifice and what he did week in, week out when he realized he might have had the opportunity to become a professional athlete and play out his dreams. But all in all, it really does come back to mindset. So I really want to get into Dugs's mind and find out what really is it that sets people apart from achieving their dreams and not achieving their dreams and what it really takes. And it's probably very similar to a lot of professions. So you could probably take tools away from this and apply it to your own life, whatever that is you're doing. So I'm very excited. Dugs is a great guy. He's a mate of mine and I can't wait to have him on the podcast. So let's just welcome him on. Dugs. 
Take it away, brother. Big love. Well, it's an absolute warm welcome onto It Ain't Week to Speak podcast, Dugs, mate. Welcome. How are you? Yeah, good, brother. Thanks for having me. Mate, it's my pleasure. I should say it's our pleasure at Living. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack here and as far as conversations. I met you through Instagram, but we've got a lot of mutual friends. And obviously, I'm very adept as to the, what you've done in your career with football and whatnot. Big fan of you, mate, by the <laughs> way, back, back playing the Blues and NRL. So we'll dive deep into that. But obviously, I want to touch on what you're doing now. You know, like up in North Queensland, you said that you've moved up to Cairns. You're doing some youth work. Yep. Mate, talk to me about that. What are you up to at the moment? Yeah, so um, I got the opportunity to move up to Cairns in February to, you know, play some footy up here. And and obviously, I did a lot of study while I was playing footy. So I did my certs three and four in youth and social work and community services. Did my mental health first aid. And then just before I retired, I, I ended up getting my diploma from TAFE in counselling. So I've done all that sort of stuff. And that was sort of always the end goal was to get back in the community and help out the next generation you know, just making better decisions and, you know, hopefully learning from my mistakes and that sort of thing. Um, while I was playing footy, actually, I did some work at the Cobham Juvenile Justice with Andrew Fafita. We spent a fair bit of time there and I really enjoyed it. Like, it was tough to see the kids in there and, like, the young men in there, you know, struggling and all that sort of thing. But also being able to go in there and sort of help them and say, like, this isn't your life, this isn't who you are. You've got a second chance once you get out of here to you know, get back on the right path. And I suppose for me up here now, working with the Quantar Foundation, it's all Indigenous and Torres Strait youth and they're in the school system already. So it's just about trying to get them through to year 10 at least and then further on to year 12. So our goal is for those boys to finish year 12 and, and then get into the workforce. And then basically we're just there as big brothers and uncles sort of thing. You know, we help them with school if they need it. We do a lot of engagement camps and things like that. Obviously, just showing them life and giving them experiences. A few weeks ago, me and Roddy Griffin took, you know, 18 year 10 boys down to Yapoon to play some footy against all the other academies in North Queen, uh, in Queensland, sorry. And just being able to get away from school for a few days and play footy, especially up here. The boys love rugby league up here. Yeah, so they, love it, eh? they dive at the opportunity to get on things like that. And, you know, they're all so well behaved on camps and you know, typical kids, they'll they'll stay up till midnight or one o'clock mucking around, but they're up at 5.30 every morning with us and, you know, listening and behaving. So it's unreal to see that. And, you know, obviously I'm with the seniors, so 10, 11, 12s, and just seeing those age groups doing well in school. And it's funny because I only did half a year 11, so I was never in the school and that's that sort of thing. that when you finished? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I, I didn't get to year 12 and that sort of thing, and I just went straight into work because I was obviously playing footy, and I only went to Arendelle College to play Arrive Alive, but because I was already in the Raiders system, they wouldn't let me play the Arrive Alive, so I was like, well, I don't need to be at school then. But, um, yeah, so with this, it's like they all get the opportunity to do things, and once you graduate year 12, you get to go on a major trip, which is like a week-long trip somewhere in Australia, and it's sort of incentive for the boys to, you know, knuckle down in their last year and, yeah, it's good. Mate, it sounds like you're doing great work. And Clontarf, mate, I know the foundation. I actually used to know a guy, uh, Charlie, that used to work within the foundation. A few years ago when I was, like, in the front lines with living back in Australia, I'm obviously in LA now. My role's kind of changed. I'm just doing the podcast and whatnot. But, mate, so a lot of things to talk about there. So are you full-time? Is it yeah, full time. Monday so to Friday. Like school teacher. So you get all the holidays and all of the same stuff that a normal yeah. teacher would get? Yeah, awesome. except we're not teachers. We don't have to do the couple of days after the terms finish and a couple of days before the term starts. So we just get two weeks straight off, which is, you know, perfect. Nice. All the public holidays off. Yeah, oh, it's good. <laughs> so rewinding. So you've obviously always had a passion. Your end goal, you wanted to get into the youth system. You want to help people, young people, especially Indigenous, because that's obviously your ties to that. What have you kind of learnt, man, throughout this process of like trying to teach kids, young kids, who obviously playing football and having goals outside of football, I'm sure, no doubt, with what you've learned, like with what you went through as a young fella to like trying to teach them the do's and the don'ts? Like what has been the biggest kind of learning experience for you in this role? Yeah, I think for me, it's I kind of haven't really touched too much on – stuff that I've done, I've just sort of kept it in the back of my mind when, 
you know, I'm trying to explain something or trying to get, you know, a change in behavior with one of the boys or that sort of thing. They're probably like all the boys in the foundation are pretty good. Like I will say they're all pretty good like because they know if they're mucking up too much and getting in trouble and doing the wrong thing, they're not going to be in it. So they lose that sort of that tie to it. Yeah, basically for me, it's just about being there for them and every kid's going to have a different circumstance or background and, you know, why they the way they are and, and all that sort of thing. So I guess that's probably just the biggest adjustment you're dealing with. So we've got 44 boys in year 10. I think there's 30 in year 11 and another 27 in year 12. So there's, you know, close to 100 boys there that we see and deal with almost every day. So you only get a small window to sort of, you know, have a yarn to the boys or, you know, say good day and play some table tennis or something like that. And, you know, sometimes all you got to do is just be there for them and show up for them. So um, I think that's the biggest thing for me at the moment, just getting into that role. And the more I'm there, it's just about showing the boys that you're there every day, you're consistent because, you know, a lot of these boys, they've probably only been brought up by their mom or their nan or something like that. And they don't have that male role model in their lives. So I think that's the biggest thing for us as Quantile staff was to just be there for them and show up day in, day out and let them know that they can rely on you and trust you and that sort of thing. And, you know, it was a bit of a struggle the first few weeks I was there because a lot of the older boys knew who I was, but the younger boys didn't have a clue. Like (laughs) some of the younger boys are born in like 2008, 2010, and I'm like over here feeling like a grandpa. But it's been good. And the more I'm there, the more the boys sort of warmed up to me and I'm loving it. Mate, what issues do you feel are the most prevalent for young Indigenous guys growing up? Like Being in the school system now, I think it's mainly moving out of community. So we've got a lot of boys from Weeper and the Cape and, and all that sort of thing, but they don't have the schooling up there and a lot of them would be homeschooled or, or just taught you know, their elders and that would have. So coming down to school, a lot of the boys, they get thrown into a year group that their age group is, but their intellectual age is probably two, three years younger than what they are. So they get thrown into, say, they come down from the islands, from TI or something like that. They come down, they're, they're 15, they get thrown into year 10. They might not have had a lot of schooling, so their intellectual thing is going to be eight. So that's the biggest thing that I've found is, you know, these boys are struggling. A lot of the boys that come from the islands in small villages and small clans and mobs and that, they don't speak a whole lot of, like, proper English. They speak a lot of broken English and that sort of thing. So you've got the language barrier and then you've also got the culture barrier, which is the biggest thing. And then obviously the learning difficulties that some of these boys have. Basically, that's why we're there. We just help them out and try and help the teachers and the school understand that you know, this is the way it is for these boys and we just try to get them up to par as best we can. And then with the Contar Foundation, obviously you said earlier the goal is obviously to get people, incentivize them, especially if they're playing footy, they've got to stay consistent, they've got to stay on top of their game, they can't muck around and disrespect obviously the teachers and what's going on, just like any normal school. Is the goal at the end of the Clontarf program, past year 12, graduate to get them into a pathway where they are working full-time and not necessarily to be NRL players? Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. So we get all the boys, regardless of you know their interests and hobbies and that, we, Like our goal is to get them year 12. So I think it's from about year nine, they start doing resumes and start getting work-ready docs and that sort of thing. And then once... um year 12 is done or like in year 12 they do a lot of partnership employment forums and stuff like there's a bunch of partners that Contaf has and like Rio Tinto, Woolworths, Kmart, like all those sort of office works, all that sort of stuff. So the boys, we went to a um, employment forum last term and yeah, the boys have spent a day there, all the academies in far north Queensland come and all the boys in year 12 from each academy went to the employment forum, got to meet and speak with partners and potentially find a pathway into a job. And, you know, as well, when we we're at uh, just the academy away from all that, we sort of have connections with the partners where we might set up a work experience day or something like that. And our year 10s last week of the term actually just went on a full work experience week, just doing all sorts of different things. And yeah, it's basically just to give them that experience and that confidence that they can go into a role when they finish school. Yeah, mate. And I feel like that's even a struggle. And, and mate, there's no comparison, but that's even a struggle for people in regional and city life, you know, finding that pathway forward. The people struggle. But like when we're talking about in particular the work that you're doing, young youth, 
trying to basically i wouldn't say like you mentioned a lot of like young guys in your group are probably coming from broken families and a big abandonment and like you know it could be drug addiction in the families there's a range of different issues where they could be faced with what's the mental health been like like is mental health and in suicide i guess something that's quite common up in your region like when you're dealing with young people no to be honest we haven't really heard or seen too much of that side of things yet It's mainly just for us, like, because we're a school-based program, a lot of our stuff is getting the boys to school and picking the boys up in the morning, dropping them home in the afternoons, and just making sure they're all good in that aspect. And obviously being there, being role models and, you know, mentors for these fellas. So, and to be honest, I haven't heard a whole lot of stuff up here either. Like, people are obviously dealing with their own sort of stuff as you do day to day and, Mm. and all that sort of thing. But I feel like up here, it's sort of away from... That side of things, like when we're in Sydney, you'd hear about it a fair bit. You hear about it a fair bit in Melbourne and all that sort of thing. But yeah, I don't know if it's something just living in paradise, you know, everyone's a bit more laid back and, you know, not so stressed out. And and obviously the cost of living up here is probably half of what Sydney is as well. So like that makes a massive difference. Like I I couldn't believe it when I come up here and I'm literally paying half the rent I was up here than I was last year. And the boys are saying to me, that's so expensive. I said, you haven't been to Sydney yet, right? Like I was literally paying double this on my own last year, like, you know, busting my absolute butt out to work, you know, 50, 60 hour weeks and losing a third of it to rent. So yeah, it's yeah, wild, you can understand mate. why a lot of people are moving up these ways and, you know, sort of getting out of that fishbowl of Sydney and Melbourne and being up here, it's like a big country town too. Like everyone's pretty friendly. You walk past someone on the street, you say g'day and, that's probably one of the biggest reasons I wanted to get out of Sydney was like you go down the city in Sydney and there's a lot of people that just stick their nose up at you or just yeah, they're so right. focused on themselves and like they're too, you know, set in their ways to just stop and like not even stop, just walk past someone and say g'day, you know, like smile at them, that sort of thing. Like I think there's a whole different side of it being up here now and being up here for a while. Like you just see the stress that everyone's under down in those big cities and yeah, I don't think I'll ever be going back down south. Yeah, and mate, it's very interesting to hear. And I find the same thing too. My mum used to live up in like near the Whit Sundays. Yeah. And I was living in Bondi at the time. And I was like, fuck, this is so much more laid back than like where I was living. And like you mentioned, it's pretty, everyone knows each other. Yeah. You're like part of a community and you're giving each other a nod and that. And well, yeah. Especially you because you're quite well known, especially from your times playing footy. Mate, what was the transition like for you personally though? Like going from playing professional footy to moving up into North Queensland, retiring. Was that at all difficult for you? Like, yeah, look, it was more so just that loss of identity. You know, footy had been a big part of my life for so long and like literally in first grade for, you know, 13, 14 years and sort of just retire the way it happened and, and obviously just I sort of kicked back for a month or two, six weeks, eight weeks and you know, I'm the sort of person that can't sit still for too long and needs to be out doing something and, you know, striving towards something. And uh, one of my good mates down, in, he's actually lived in Nowra, which is about an hour and a half from where I was living. And he goes, oh, we need someone to just come give us a hand for a month or two, like concrete. I was like, yeah, no worries, I'll come down. That probably helped me in a sense. Like I've always had a pretty good work ethic and drive to do things. And whenever I've sort of put my mind to it, I go 100% at it and, I was just sort of going mad at home, doing nothing. And I could have done it for a little bit longer, but, you know, that's not me. And I ended up, you know, starting working with them and enjoyed it so much there. I was probably there for 10 months and then got a better offer to go work in the tunnels and all that sort of thing in uh, Sydney on the new M7 and all that that they're building. I ended up doing that and then, yeah, got the opportunity to come up here. But I suppose... I was waking up at, you know, four o'clock every morning, driving to Nowra for work to be there at 6.30. And then, you know, we'd finish anywhere between three and four and I'd get home at 5.36, <laughs> shower, eat, oh, probably yeah. back to bed and then just go again. That's a long day. Yeah. That's a long day, man. Okay. So, and mate, yeah, what you're saying about loss of identity is something that I hear very regularly, especially with mates that have been in NRL or any sport, professional athletes. Even different industries, man, like actors and people who have been in something for so long that it's kind of, you feel like that is who you are as a person and that's wrapped up in like a bubble. But, you know, and I guess to a certain degree, 
I might have even experienced it, but I feel like, and I don't know about you, but something that's always worked for me is trying to, rugby league, for example, for you was just one of the things that you were great at that you did. It wasn't who you are as a person for the rest of your life. You know, that was kind of one chapter, one journey, but you're a lot more than that. You know, you're compassionate, you're empathetic, you're grateful for the things that you're doing. Look, you're helping people right now. So I feel like when you don't wrap yourself up in a thing, a job or an identity, I feel like you feel a little bit more looser. You don't kind of have that kick back as hard, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. And I think I probably realized that late in my career, I probably laid back a lot more. It was after all that stuff in 2017, I think it was. And then I ended up in rehab and I come out of rehab and I was just like, you know what? Not everyone's going to like me. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And if it makes me happy and the people around me still love me and, you know, care for me and think I'm a decent bloke and then that's all that matters to me you know like NRL players and all that they get put under the microscope about absolutely everything and and half the time you know it's not really warranted but it is what it is that's the way it is and you know if you can find that balance outside and and knowing yourself and know who you are as a person then you know you go a long way to being able to handle all the bullshit that goes with it and just keep moving forward and keep being the person you are so I think that was the biggest thing for me was being able to do that after rehab and all that and then moving forward like I was so set in who I was as a person and knew exactly who I was what I was doing you know nothing that was said or done really bothered me anymore and I think when I retired yeah that that made it a whole lot easier because I knew that it wasn't just a footy player like I, I knew who I was to people around me to my family what I was trying to achieve moving forward as well with the youth work and all that sort of stuff like I had goals so made it a bit easier but like I said I'm just someone that can't sit still and when I do sit still you start sort of brain ticking and yeah you get the squirrels in there and then you, you get just gotta chat, keep going. too much yeah. chatter bro way <laughs> too much chatter I'm the same man it's fucking torture mate what was the stint like in rehab like what'd you learn most about that back yes yeah, so I was there for um five weeks I think it was mainly just because I'd been through a few injuries in 2018 my first year at Cronulla and um, moving to a new club, I wanted to impress and that sort of thing and, and ended up getting a few niggles that sort of put me on the sideline and I didn't play as many games as I wanted. And then, yeah, I had to have a shoulder reco at the end of the year and I ended up abusing prescription drugs and that sort of thing, painkillers mainly. And, and then um, I just wasn't myself. The boys started picking up on it, spoke to our team manager at the time, Shane Smith, and He's an absolute legend and he sort of just gave me a phone call out of the blue one day and said, mate, you're good. And I said, no, probably not. And then um, he said, oh, what do you think about heading to rehab? I said, oh, yeah, I suppose. Like, (laughs) It was like the off-season. I didn't really want to – I was in a sling. I was off-season. I didn't really want to go to Thailand for, you know, five weeks. But at the same time, I sort of knew that I needed help to get out of the hole that I was in. So, you know, I ended up – taking him up on his offer, flew out like the next day to Chiang Mai in Thailand and yeah, spent five weeks at a facility over there and it was good. We sort of had a curfew. We had to be up for breakfast every day and, you know, for me, structure and scheduling is easy. Like I've lived my whole life by it with footy. Yeah, so like that was easy for me. The main thing was just, you know, being brutally raw and honest with total strangers and looking back at it, like there's guys that have, you know, that's their fifth and sixth stint in rehab and they're still struggling. And, you know, it was an eye-opener for me. It sort of made me realise, like, to me in that moment, I sort of said, my problems are this big. Like, they're tiny compared to these fellas in here and, like, these people in here. Like, they've been alcoholics for 20 years or something like that. And it just really hit home that, you know, I can nip this in a bud now after, you know, 12 months and not keep going through that, you know, vicious cycle that these people are going through. The biggest thing for me was just seeing that, I suppose these people are still trying to get better. Didn't matter how many times they'd been there. Didn't matter how old they were. They were still trying to be better people. So for me, it was just about getting back, doing the things that I said I was going to do in there. And, you know, I worked in the rehab that I was in. We all got our own psychologists, our own personal, like not personal, but each person had to just see someone one-on-one while they're in there as well. So How often? Like once uh, Every two days, I think it was. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we did that and was working with them closely and then, I said to myself, you know, I'll I'll take this opportunity to be better and, you know, try and learn every day. Yeah, wow. Well, mate, and, and, you know, sometimes would you say, hang on, let me ask you this, would you say as far as your career or maybe even your life, if this was in 2018, it wasn't much earlier than when you retired, 
would you say that was close to your rock bottom in life or have you had other more rock bottom experiences that have kind of been like a changing moment for you and you're like, fuck, I've got to either go this way, make a real good change and get back to my best self or go the other way where you can even spiral further, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it was definitely my rock bottom. That sort of two-year period, like my ex-wife. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market she found me foaming at the mouth one night because i probably nearly overdosed on pills and that sort of thing. And yeah, so like she saved me and then obviously rehab saved me as well. So, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. Obviously things didn't work out the way that I thought it would with her, but, you know, moving on and I've got a loving partner now that I've been with, you know, nearly a year and just enjoying life. We've got the same sort of interests and, and all that sort of thing. And I think having someone by your side that you click with day in, day out and, you know, you can be yourself with is really important. I felt like with my ex, I was a bit, you know, opposite to her. Like we enjoyed different things. And I suppose like we obviously cared for each other and all that sort of stuff. But over time, you sort of just grow apart because you're not interested in the same things. And it's just the way it goes. And that's just part of life sometimes though, man, isn't it? And you look back at these moments in life and I know I do. And some of the darkest times of my life are like in the moment, you don't really see the silver lining kind of thing. But once you're out of it and you're feeling better about yourself and you might be on a whole different journey, i.e. like yourself now, as far as the transition goes, new partner and everything else, you look back and go, well, fuck, that's why it kind of happened, maybe. Like, look where I am now. You're on a better level. You guys get each other. And that's just one example, you know, and that could happen in a whole very like different ways of life. Your work, where you were playing footy, maybe back into your career, you weren't in like maybe were you enjoying your footy as much back into your career as opposed to the start? No, nah, definitely not. It became a chore and yeah. and that's obviously the reason why I didn't go to the UK as well. Like I got offered a couple of clubs over there to go play footy for a couple of years in the UK and I sort of just said I've had enough. But oh, wow. one thing I've always sort of lived by is, you know, there's no losses to me. It's only lessons. So you take everything as a lesson to try and be better and grow and, I don't think I've ever made the same mistake twice. And, you know, I've always taken it as a lesson. I've always, you know, owned whatever I've done, all the shit that, you know, I sort of went through and did, the dumb shit. But own it, you move on, and that's just part of being a man. Yeah, 100% agree. I think one of the most important things is about growing and just moving forward is taking full responsibility for yourself. No one else's fault. Yeah, You know, like you've got control over yourself really at the end of the day and it's up to you to put your hand up and say, I fucked up or this is where I'm going right or this is where I'm going wrong and you just move forward kind of thing, you know. And I feel like the more you try and blame other people and use excuses, I feel like you just get stuck in mud. 
and you can't really move anyway. Yeah, and then you start feeling worse and worse about it because you're yeah. dragging other people into it and then they get the shits at you and yeah, it's just a big snowball effect that can be avoided if you just, you know, you own your own shit, your own doing and then learn from it and move on from it. Yeah, I agree, man. And what was like, you know, the highlight of your career, man, playing footy? Like was there any one moment, one time where you can remember real viscerally and going, fuck, that was fucking – I was living, oh, I was at the top there, man. That was, yeah, uh, was there's, that there's a couple. I mean, you know, obviously playing my debut for Canberra, in Canberra, all my family there, I think there's about 30 of my family there. And, yeah, good. You know, I debuted against the Cowboys and JT was playing at the time and I'm this little 18-year-old scrawny little kid coming up against one of the best halfbacks in the game. And I think my first few weeks in the NRL, I'd played Jonathan Thurston, Darren Lockyer and Trent Barrett all in the first few oh. weeks. So, like... I was under the pump. Yeah, I got through it. I ended up getting player of the year with um, Joshy Miller that year at Canberra, my first year in grade. And then I went, my next sort of big moment was in 2011. I debuted for the Blues, you know, 21, still scrawny, still, you know, just bugging along, but got the opportunity. And then um, the sort of the last few years where I was incumbent for the Australians and um, New South Wales, that was, you know, a highlight. Like I always wanted to get to that point where, I'd be one of the first selected and getting to play with those guys like G.I., Billy Slater, Cooper Cronk, Smith, Thurston, like just elite athletes. Going on the tours with them was unreal. Like we had a tour in the UK for about six weeks and we obviously won that. And then, you know, the World Cup in 2017, which we won. And, you know, the highlight still gets played of for me, ankle tapping um, that Callum bloke from England and... <laughs> Yeah, just being able to win that and celebrate afterwards and just looking back at it, knowing that you reached the pinnacle of the game for, you know, representatives and, you know, something very proud of, being able to play for Australia, being able to play for your country and knowing that you were one of the best players in your country for that moment, you know, it's very humbling and, you know, something I'll be very proud of, I think, for a long time. I love that, mate. And I'll tell you what, mate, you're fucking elite. Let's just be honest, mate. I used to love watching you play for the Blues because I'm a Blues supporter. Yeah. I'm like, fucking let's go, dude. Let's go. <laughs> like, you're elite, man. And I think It's a tough people, watch up here now. Yeah, I, mate. It's dark, <laughs> mate. They are cooked. <laughs> yeah, I don't, cool. I don't know what's going Joey on. Joey Johns, mate. Look, well, maybe he might step in as coach. Not that I think Brad Fittler's doing a bad job, but he's getting so much steam, huh? Yeah. Yeah, look, I don't know what the go is. I think you can just see the attitude difference, I think, at the moment. So much different, eh? They don't want it as much. When Queensland's behind, they do everything they can to win that game. Like, you look at game one when they lost, I can't remember who it was, but someone got Simbin. They were down yeah, by like six. People. Yeah, they were down and they ended up coming back and winning. and. Then, you know, scoring you see, two tries. Yeah. Scoring two tries with one less. And then you see New South Wales down by 10 on last game and they sort of just kept going through the motions. There wasn't anyone that really stood out trying to lift the team and it's an attitude thing. Yeah, it absolutely is. Do you ever get times where you're like watching it going, fuck, let me know. Oh, every game. Like, every game. Yeah. Every game I'm doing it screaming at the TV oh. going, what is this? <laughs> What well, mate, as someone, obviously, you've played all representative footy, you've played World Cup, you've played what is 12, 12 games for the Blues, 12 games for Australia, whatever, which is insane, absolutely insane. Like, when they talk about, like, you hear this all the time, and, like, as a Queenslander, they just get it. They've got this mentality where they're, un like, they come back from nothing. Like, is it really an attitude thing? And, like, how do you bond in camp that's different to club? I'm not sure how they do it now, but I still remember my first one in 2011. We'd get into camp on Sunday and we'd be down the Coogee Bay Hotel Sunday night with all the boys yeah. and sort of just lock it down and go from there. And I suppose there's a big drinking culture in rugby league and I don't think that'll ever sort of change. Like we're just knockabout blokes, a lot of us that have come, you know, from housing commission or something like that. Like rugby league was a game that we had to escape as kids and I think like, I, I don't know how you do it now. There's so many eyes on everything. And I suppose it's just getting to know each other and obviously trying to click and gel in, in 10 days is a bit of a feat. You know, it can be done. And even if you lose, like, you can still have a good team morale and all that sort of thing. Like, you never really know who's going to win an Origin game. It, it can literally be flipped on its head at any moment in that game. And that's what Origin's about is just those, like, Origin moments. Like, you look at Stefan Crichton when he made that break last weekend and Cherry chased him down. Like, that's an origin moment to me. And, Change you know, it. someone tagged me in a video before game one and it was 
one of the Queenslanders making a break and I sort of chased back and saved the try. We're up by 30, but, like, I still had that want and desire. Like, I'm not going to let them score. I'm not going to just coast here. Like, we've got the game in the bag, basically. Like, I was like, no, nah, fuck that. They're not scoring on my edge. Like, yeah. it's just a want thing. That, you know, it's hard to say. Like, I think the payments are good, but at the same time, like, if you took the payments away and you had blokes that actually want to be there and want to win and they'll do anything to win... Maybe they say, here's 10 and you get 20 if you win, or 10 and 10. Is that 10. not what they do? No, it's just a one-off payment, yeah. Oh, really? Whether you win or lose? Yeah. Oh, fuck. So maybe they a, say a winning you bonus. get 10 for making a side and you get 10 grand for winning, you know? Like, who knows? Oh, but, yeah. like, I think it's just there's so much eyes on New South Wales and, like, the media is a big thing too. Media crucifies their own all the time in Sydney. And then you go to Brisbane and, like, even up here, like, they won't say a bad word about the boys. Like, they'll just be like, no, nah, they had a good game. They lost, but, you know, they'll bounce back next game. Like, they don't sit there and bag the boys. Oh, they need to change this. They need to sack the coach. Like, you know, like Sydney does. That's another thing, too. I think the pressure might get to a few of the boys. But, you know, I'm not there. I'm not in that camp. So, I don't want to be speaking out of school too no. much. No, no, no. Of course. It's one of those things. It's tough to watch as a Blues supporter, as an ex-Blues player. And, you know, just knowing the way that I'd be in that arena is like, yeah, it's yeah. tough to watch. Going jumping out of your skin. Is it much like as far as like playing for the Raiders and the Sharks and the Dragons, is the pressure miles above when you're playing like representative Australia and New South Wales? Yeah, I think New South Wales, there's a lot more pressure. Sort of towards the back end of the, like when I was playing for Australia, it started picking up, like the international game started growing. And I think that had a lot to do with Mal as well, like, Mal sort of come in, there was no New South Wales, there was no Queensland, it was just green and gold. And then he wanted to make representing your country the pinnacle again. Obviously, Origin's always going to be the pinnacle of NRL because it's such a big spectacle. Like So many people. They, they take it all over Australia now, which I think is a bit stupid, but I suppose they're trying to grow the game. It's called State of Origin. It should just be New South Wales and yeah. Queensland. But yeah, They'll be in the States. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, like Mal just sort of said, like, this is the pinnacle and he sort of started growing the game the international game and I think the having a World Cup in 2017 in Australia probably helped it a bit too. Like we're getting decent crowds and all the rest of it. And then um like I was saying, Origin is such a big spectacle. There's so much money involved with it that I think there's always going to be pressure in that situation, like on both sides, coach and staff and players. It'd be so hard too, like Coming in on a Sunday, having 10 days sometimes with players, yeah, might not even get along with because you butt heads on other clubs, eh? And that happens, eh? Oh, yeah, 100%. And then also, like, one of those days is just going to be completely media. So you've really only got nine days. To train and to yeah. fucking do plays. It's a tough one, eh? I, yeah. Mate, it's wild. And so it's definitely harder, though. The games are more brutal. Like, the hits are harder. Yeah. The intensity's quicker. It definitely is. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like the some of the quickest games that I would have played in was Origin. Like just ball in play. Like there'd be ten minute periods where the balls just stayed in play. We're out on our feet, you know, defending our try line and stuff like that. And you literally feel like you've got nothing left. And that's only twenty minutes into the game. You look up the clock. You're like, fuck! It's still sixty minutes to go. So sixty more minutes of this, and you just got to keep finding a way. That's wild. Eh? Gus says it all the time. He says like. He's an origin player and, like, just being able to do that over and over, no matter, like, what time it is of the game, is just, like, being an origin player, being built for that arena and, you know, having that want and drive to just keep doing those little things and keep getting up for your teammate and just trying to win the game. Yeah, and it's different, eh? Being an origin player is definitely different than being a club player, especially when you hear, like, the media and they're like, oh, he's never, like, the person's never played origin. It's a big risk putting them into that environment and... Because you can either make you or can yeah. break you. Oh, 100%. Obviously, you cracked it, which is amazing. And you've had many great experiences. You've won many games as a Blue. I don't recall how many, do you? Nah. I don't think I won a whole lot, but I remember we won the series in 14 and sort of broke that Queensland run. So that was fun. That, that's one thing I'll take. They've probably got five immortals in our team and we knocked yeah. them off. So I'll take that. Yeah, that was elite. What's your, like, when you grew up, is your parents and family all from Canberra, that area, or? Uh, yeah, so, like, my whole family's from Canberra, and they're all Dragon supporters, so they brainwashed me as a kid, and I was sort of, I think I was, like, 10 or 11, I said to my old boy, I said, like, I'm going to debut for Canberra at 18 and then go to the Dragons, and... You said that at 10? Yeah. 
know why. Yeah. Talk to me through that. What do you mean? I don't even know. I, I think I was just a young kid, like, thinking this is what I want to do. And, yeah, I ended up saying to my old boy, I said, I'm going to debut for Raiders at 18 and, and then go to Dragons at 21. But I think I was – I just turned 23 when I signed with the Dragons. It's a spin-out because, like, I didn't really think about it too much until I actually went to the Dragons. I'm like – so I told you I was going to do this. Like yeah, I still laugh totally. about it to mum and dad and like we go down the pub or whatever, have a few beers when I'm back home and I'm like, I told you I was going to do what I said. That's so good, man. I love that. And so who got you into footy when you were young anyway? My old boy. So he played a lot of footy for Western Creek and he went to a South Open trial and that sort of thing and he probably had the opportunity but family circumstances didn't allow him to move to Sydney for it and sort of just went by and, you know, stuck with the family and, you know, Help them out. Yeah, he always sort of got me into it. I didn't actually start playing rugby league until I was a 10. So oh, wow. I went to play one year when I was like six or seven, but I ended up throwing up like at the like training. Nerves? So I ended up just nerves? brushing it. Was that I, don't, I don't know what it was. I think I might have ate something, probably nerves <laughs> as well. I was like, no, yeah. You were seven. You were yeah. seven and you brushed it. You didn't go back for yeah. three more years. I didn't go back. I went and played soccer for like four years. Oh, and then no yeah, way. one of the boys at school – said they were short on players and it was up a year, playing up a year. So I ended up going and playing under 11s when I was 10 and I stuck with that until, you know, under 13s, I think. So I played up a year for three years. Whereabouts? In Canberra, so, South, uh, Valley in Dragons. Canberra. Yeah, Valley okay, Dragons. Yeah. And then I went to South Pugarong Knights when I was 15, sort of followed a yeah. coach there. My junior coach, my whole junior year is Richard Keeley. So ended up following him and then went from 16s to under 18s and, my first year at under 18s, I was playing all three grades a day. So far out. Yeah. That's wild. See, so what was you playing 18s, A grade, and state league or something? No, 18s, reserves, and A's. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's really cool. And so, did you know, like, as he, like, when you were around 10, like, you just had it? Or would it take a while to go, fuck it? When I'm playing against, like, these guys, like, there would have been a moment where you've obviously got self belief. You wouldn't have been where you were without it. Did you go, fuck? I'm miles ahead of these yeah. Not being like a big, yeah. big-headed or anything, but like did you know you had that kind of inner like skill set? I think it was probably a, like I, I knew I was decent. Like I could play pretty much anywhere on the field. I played lock, 5'8", center, fullback, like through my juniors. And then I was playing up a year level two and still playing pretty well. And then even when I, I went to Morris Brothers in Canberra, which is a rugby school, and, you know, I was playing – 15s and 18s while I was there as well like I was playing first 15 in year 10 and that sort of thing and then obviously I made a lot of the rep teams growing up I made all the rugby union rep teams and made the I think it was the 15s rugby league tournament and then I didn't make school boys which I'm not disappointed about because I went on to play the real thing but um yeah I suppose I never really sort of had that on that person sort of moment I just sort of I always backed myself and just backed what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was willing to do things that probably a lot of the other boys that probably had more talent than me as a kid weren't, like giving up going to house parties and all that sort of thing because you had to play or train on the weekend. And, like, don't get me wrong, I still was a rat bag when I was younger and, like, 18, 19, I was a proper rat bag. But I think I was just someone that could be a rat bag and then turn up and perform the way I did. And I think that helped me a lot. And, it wasn't until I got to St. George that I was kind of like, you know, I've gotten by to here on just pure talent and then like not looking after niggles and, you know, being a rat bag and that sort of thing. I got to the Dragons and sitting down with guys like Benny Cray and Dean Young and like those sort of Benny Hornby, like those sort of guys, it was like, oh, shit, yeah, I've got to like pull my finger out now and start looking after myself, looking after my body if I want to play 200 games like I did and, you know, that sort of thing. So that nah, was good. I sort of, yeah, I said, brother, this is it now. And my first year in, at Dragons in 13, I ended up playing Origin, 14 played Origin, 15 played Origin. So That's so good, man. And it's you're right, though. Like, talent can get you so far. But if you don't put in the work on top of the talent, if someone's working harder than you but probably yeah. aren't as talented, they're probably going to pass you. Yeah, because they'll be more reliable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more committed, they'll work around the clock. It's like hard work, eh? Yeah. You put in the hard work. And if you're talented, you're flying. Oh, yeah, exactly. To young people maybe listening or to anyone that wants to pursue any kind of sport, like a professional level sport, like when you look back on it and you reflect, 
what do you think would the best advice would be to give to them? Or what would you have wished to hear as someone that was really young? Maybe you already heard it, but yeah, what could you tell someone right now that might be listening and be like, fuck, I really want to pursue soccer or footy or surfing or boxing or whatever it is? Yeah, I think I'll say one thing after I say this. Like, yeah, yeah. For me, if I was to say to anyone that wanted to pursue, this applies to anything, I suppose. Like, if it's something that you really want to do, you have to be willing to sacrifice, you know, friends, family, parties, all that sort of thing. Like, you have to be 100% committed to your end goal and wanting to achieve that. You know, some people are going to sit there and cheer you on and like that's good, but other people are going to be jealous of you because you're doing what they can't and they might try and sabotage you in a way, whether that's a personal relationship or something like that. So you have to be willing to be outcasted and, you know, keep wanting to do that. And then you just have to put the work in, you know, be ready for the being the outcast, but also be ready to put the work in because no one's going to do it for you. You have to... You know, if it's sport, you have to train, you have to turn up. You might have other commitments as well that you have to juggle and it all becomes a balancing act on that. But for me, it was something that was said that told me that I wasn't going to make it that drove me the most. You know, I was told when I was 11 or 12 that one out of every age group goes on to, you know, higher grades of representative. And I was like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to be that one in my age group. And that's sort of probably where it clicked Like, obviously, I was 10. Like, you have dreams as a kid. You want to play in the NRL and all that sort of thing. But when I was 12, that sort of really set in that, you know, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, I ended up making Howard Maths and then played um, SG Ball at 16, which is 18's SG Ball. And then I played one year of SG Ball. I was 17, playing 21's, the jersey flag back then. And, you know, the next year I was in training full-time. So it sort of all happened pretty quickly. but. Again, like I said, I lost a lot of mates because of it, because I wasn't going to the house parties. I wasn't hanging out with them as much as I was. And I've had a yarn to a few of them since. Like, obviously, you make it. They Like, a lot of people come out of the woodworks and all that sort of thing, want to be mates yeah, again. But mate again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, to me, if you lose anyone, they're not really there for you in the first place. That's how I think anyway. Like, if someone's not making that effort to give you a phone call or a text message every now and then, checking in and, making sure you're doing all right, then you're not really losing a whole lot. Nah, mate, I, I kind of live by that too. I think that's spot on. Where does the will to do it though, committed as a young person and that fear of missing out and shit come from? Like there's a fine line there. I've experienced it before. I'm like, yeah, you're committed. You want to do it. It's great. And the end goal's so juicy and you're right there, but you're kind of then going, I've got to miss out on that. And give up on that. That's a tough one, man. Oh, 100%. And it took me a few years. Like I said, obviously, I got by on talent for a long time. But my first year of 20s, the Toyota Cup, you know, I got dropped a few times for just waking up. Like I, I used to have to, because we trained in Belconnen, which is about, I was living at home then down in Southside, which is about an hour drive. And I was like, I can't be bothered waking up at four o'clock to go train at five o'clock and then go straight to work you know, for eight hours to come back that afternoon. Like you're doing like 15 hour days, like training, working, training. And because I lived an hour away, I wasn't getting home till like 8.30 at night, most nights when I train, excuse me. And then there'd just be some mornings where I was just so ratchet that I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to pop it. Like I'm sending, I'm, I'm not going to do weights at five o'clock in the morning. And, and then like, yeah, just a couple of times there, like I'd go to a house party or whatever on a weekend and turn up hungover if I was like 18th man and stuff like that, which, you know, looking back on it, if I had to go on the field, I'd probably be in a bit of strife. But yeah, like you still got to live your life and enjoy your life and especially as a kid and, you know, get those experiences and that sort of thing. But I suppose you just sort of know in yourself when it's time to really switch on that like tunnel vision mode and for me i think that was about 18 19 i was already in the system and that sort of thing and you know getting by playing good footy but i think you know when i was 19 i sort of said right i can't be associated with that anymore i need to you know pull my finger out and and make sure that you know i'm not given any excuse to you know lose this i love that advice it's very good advice mate it's good advice for me too Especially as I'm embarking on these new beginnings. That's great. I appreciate it. Mate, I've appreciated you being on this podcast. I really have. It's been great to get to speak to you on a deeper level. Could speak to you for hours, mate. 
You're obviously doing outstanding work. Hope to catch up with you at some stage, mate, when I'm back in Australia, maybe yeah, later this sure. year. If you ever find yourself in the States, mate, let me know. I've still never been to the States, what? so I've got to get over there. Yeah. No way. I swear. Footy's just You're always taken up everything. And then now I'm a bit older and, you know, obviously living in paradise now. Like, you spend so much time at home. And yeah, I think there's no better place than wherever you find home. And you know, having the reef on one side, the rainforest on the other side, it's a pretty good place to call home. But yeah, I definitely need to get to America. I've been talking with a mate, it's his 40th next year. So we're talking about coming over to the States for a trip and, oh, you know, nice. sending that one last time for him, I suppose. Yeah, mate, why not? That, mate, that sounds great. Well, man, and you're not wrong. I mean, North Queensland's great. And up there is, like you mentioned earlier, the weather's always perfect. People are cool. Everyone's kind of laid back. It's not very stressful environment. You love your fishing. What a place to go fishing, man. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You got the best of everything, mate. But where can people find you, mate, if they want to track you down, follow the great work you're doing in the Clontar Foundation and, yeah, maybe follow your journey? Where can they find you? Yeah, just on Instagram. I do have a Twitch that I stream on every now and then where I just sort of yarn, but I think that's in my Instagram bio as well. But they're the two main ones I sort of just – I'm a lot more laid back these days, so, yeah. Bit more under the radar, mate. Bit more under the radar. Yeah, yeah. And I'll put all this stuff in the show notes, guys. And, yeah, it's always been a pleasure, mate. I, you know, I really appreciate your time. And, mate, thanks for coming on to the podcast. It's been amazing. No, no dramas, brother. Happy to help. Big love, mate. Big love. Thank you for listening in to another episode of It Ain't Week to Speak. Please subscribe to the show and help us climb the charts so that we can attract new listeners and change more lives. If you found something very useful in this episode, please share and spread the love to as many people as you can. Don't forget to leave a review or a comment so that we can grow this community together because a conversation can save a life. If you want to continue this chat, please join me on the podcast Facebook group at living.org. I can't wait to share the next episode with you. But in the meantime, we're going to the top. And remember, it ain't weak to speak. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.